is an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. As each state has now taken at least a step toward easing restrictions meant to contain the coronavirus, we're getting a clearer picture of which communities have been most affected. It's lower-income communities and communities of color, particularly in New York City, where 27% of people in those neighborhoods tested positive for coronavirus antibodies, compared to 19% of the general citywide population. The spread is continuing in those communities, and that's where the new cases are coming from. Governor Andrew Cuomo said today the gap is even wider in certain parts of the Bronx and Brooklyn, where more than 40 percent of the people have the antibodies. That's where the cases are coming from. That's where the new hospitalizations are coming from. That's what's going into the hospital system. That's where you're going to see the highest number of deaths. He said the state would begin a public health education campaign in housing projects and distribute masks and hand sanitizer. Getting the PPE into the community, getting the hand sanitizer into the community, explaining social distancing and why that's so important and explain how this virus spreads. It's a public health education effort. To those who live in public housing, this is overdue. The density makes social distancing difficult and leaves tenants vulnerable. This week, ABC News is offering special coverage of the disproportionate impact of coronavirus on black, Hispanic, and indigenous Americans in a series called A Nation Divided. G2 Brown joins us from Journey for Justice Alliance in Chicago. Why is this virus hitting communities of color so hard? You know, the COVID crisis just unveils uh, a horrible practice that we've experienced really for decades in this country, which has been the sabotage of our basic quality of life institutions, food production and delivery systems, health care, education, um, housing, economic development. Uh, so those things that many Americans take for granted, we often have to fight and scratch for. So this crisis really exposes our country's lack of willingness to address these issues. How did that play out where you are in Chicago? When the pandemic really uh, hit, we started to see deaths spiral around the country. In Chicago, we are, today we're only 30% of the population, but we were 70% of the deaths. And while this was happening, uh, many of our, our hospitals were on the brink of closure, such as Mercy Hospital. Uh, we've already lost Michael Reese Hospital and virtually every other hospital that's in the black community has been starved to the point of really minimum capacity. What, the, what does that mean? When the um, pandemic hit and many of our people who have pre-existing conditions, we go to the hospital, we're sent back home, right? I have family member, I have a family member who uh, was sent back home from the emergency room three times and died. What's causing these gaps and disparities? Well, you know, um, this African proverb that says the truth is simple. If it's complicated, it's a lie. And I think at some point we have to realize that America has never dealt with her ugly, which is a baseless hatred for black, brown, indigenous families. Institutional racism is the reason. Institutional racism is at play. So people want to say that black people are getting COVID because we are not listening, right? Uh, while ignoring uh, white families that are storming the state capitol in Michigan or, or doing protests all over the country, and they're not social distancing. We are getting COVID because we don't have health care. We are getting COVID because we're going to the hospital and they're sending us home. And so I think at the federal level and at the local level, what we must have from people is the first thing, humility. 
Understanding that you are not better than that mother who's a high school graduate who works at Walmart. That that mother is working just as hard as you to make a future for her baby. Do you think the clamor for reopening would be different if it weren't communities of color that are now the source of the most new COVID infections? I, I definitely believe that that's a major part of it, that once people realize that it's black, brown and indigenous folks that are getting sick, that are getting sick the most, the sense of importance has gone down a great deal. We are in a very critical moment where we see America's response to life or death needs has not changed. So institutionalized loveless, lovelessness is alive and well. And we, But we have a moment, an opportunity to change it. G2 Brown of Journey for Justice Alliance in Chicago. Here in New York, the Transit Authority is testing ultraviolet light to disinfect subways, buses, and commuter trains. It comes after Dr. David Brenner at Columbia University confirmed UV light does kill the coronavirus. So this may have application beyond public transportation. Dr. Brenner is with us now. We've known for quite a while ultraviolet light is a natural disinfectant. How's it applying to this global pandemic? Um, well, you're absolutely right. And it's been known actually since the 1890s that uh, uh, UV light is good at killing microbes, uh, bacteria and viruses, uh, both. Over the years, I mean, it's it's been used uh, quite a lot. And it's been used, for example, in uh, disinfecting uh, surgical uh, operating theatres uh, overnight. The, the background to the use of conventional germicidal UV light is that it's a potential health hazard. So in an occupied space, you can't directly shine it on uh, on people because it has potential uh, issues for the skin and potential issues uh, for the eye. One of the ways around that is uh, is is to do the uh, the decontaminations when no people are around, and that, for example, is what they are doing uh, at the MTA. Um, another approach is uh, one that we're taking is to look at a different type of ultraviolet light that's called far UVC light. And far UVC light is just as effective at killing uh, bacteria and viruses, but doesn't share the health hazards as with conventional germicidal UV light. So that could then apply to a movie theater, a Broadway theater, keep it on and, and suddenly the, the room is virus-free? Um, well, yes, the, the, the idea is uh, you would apply it to situations w uh, where people are occupying spaces and, of course, an infinite number of those, uh, restaurants, offices, uh, subways. It's not quite the way you described it. It's not that you're going to turn it on and immediately all the viruses disappear. Um, the picture we have, at least, is that uh, in, a, in an occupied room with uh, a group of people, shall we say that it, we start with no virus in that room? As people are in that room and uh, people start coughing and, and sneezing and, and, and even talking, the amount of virus potentially in that room is steadily going to uh, increase. And so there's going to be a, an ambient level of virus uh, in that room. Uh, and that's really what we want to, uh, to, to, to do battle with. It is that ambient level of uh, virus in an, in an occupied space, be it a restaurant or an office uh, that we're trying to lower as much as we possibly can. How is the technology harnessed? The lamps, uh, the far UVC lamps, uh, are generally uh, going to be on continuously at, at, a, at a low level the whole time. And essentially what it's doing is preventing that virus from, from dividing and multiplying, which is, of course, the, the big issue. It feels like a game changer. Well, we hope it, it is. Uh, I mean, there, there are not many 
technologies or techniques out there for preventing the transmission of uh, virus from one person to, to another in, in, a, in a public setting. Most of, most of the research that I know that's going on, for example, is, is in vaccination, which is, of course, uh, uh, trying to prevent the body from uh, responding to the virus once, once it's inside them. Uh, what we're trying to do is to kill the virus before it gets inside them. Dr. David Brenner at Columbia University Irving Medical Center. FEMA said social distancing measures established during the coronavirus pandemic have driven down childhood vaccination rates in Connecticut. The CDC noted a similar trend in Michigan, where coverage with all recommended vaccines declined. Pediatric vaccination rates have fallen, too, in New York City, where there was a 42 percent drop in children two years or younger and a 91 percent drop in children over two. Immunizations require in-person visits to a doctor, so the belief is this is not a trend toward anti-vaccination, but rather parents skipping routine appointments out of fear they or their kids will contract COVID-19 in a doctor's office. The CDC said there will have to be some accommodation so kids don't get sick from other diseases in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. We also heard today about the effectiveness of wearing masks. Governor Cuomo noted frontline workers, nurses, doctors, transit workers, police officers, all wear masks and all have a lower infection rate than the general public. Cuomo said those surgical masks work. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thanks, Aaron. With me now is our Dr. Jen Ashton. And we're now hearing about these sailors who are testing positive for COVID-19 after reportedly recovering from COVID-19. So what do we know about recovery and then potentially reinfection. And it's not just the sailors, Amy. There's new data just out of the Korean CDC on the same topic. So let's take a look at what we know right now. First of all, remember, when you talk about the testing, there is no such thing as any diagnostic test that is 100 percent perfect all the time. The nasal swab, which is that PCR that we use to diagnose active infection, can have both false positives and false negatives. And these results can be affected by a number of factors. First of all, the method of how the test is is actually done when it's done in the course of illness, whether it's done too soon or too late. It can be contaminated, which can lead to a false positive. And then the storage time, the time that elapsed from when the culture is done to when it's actually processed, all of that can affect the results. All right. So when someone tests positive and then they recover and then test positive again, what could cause that? Well, so there are a couple of leading theories right now. Number one, if you if you really consider this course, when they are tested the middle time and they get a negative, here are the theories. First of all, is there some, such a thing as a false negative, which, of course, we've said can be the case, just because they're shedding virus and they test positive again down the road doesn't necessarily mean that they're contagious or infectious. Mm. That's just out of the, the Korean CDC data. And it's really unlikely that someone can be reinfected with the same strain. We think that's just a basic premise of medicine. All right. What are the unknowns at this point? Well, right now, we don't know how long someone who has been infected and positive can shed the virus. This Korean CDC data suggests anywhere from 8 to 82 days, Amy, after they initially have symptoms. We don't think that someone who sheds virus any longer is infectious, but still we need a lot more study on that. And we also don't know if someone who's completely recovered can then be reinfected with another strain. Again, we think this is unlikely, Mm. but right now... And there are multiple strains out there. Exactly. So right now we still need to know for sure. Okay. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. 
She'll be back. back later in the show. Well, now with all 50 states partially open, it is up to those governors to determine the best path forward in the wake of COVID-19. And here to discuss his strategy to get the state of Mississippi out of this health and economic crisis is Governor Tate Reeves. Governor Reeves, thanks for being with us. And I know in the past few weeks, you have allowed some businesses to reopen with certain restrictions, restaurants, gyms, barbershops, and most recently, tattoo parlors. How did you make those determinations and tell us how it's going? In every decision that we've made, we have to recognize and realize that we have a public health crisis in this state and in this country, while at the same time we have an economic crisis. And that's the way in which we've approached every single decision that we have made. We've let the data drive our decision making. We know for a fact, for instance, in Mississippi, that while we have 11,704 cases right now, it took 23 days for those cases to double. And if you look at an, an ultimate goal of flattening the curve and protecting your health care system, what we've seen over the last 30 days, for instance, on hospitalizations, our lowest number of hospitalizations over those 30 days was 400. Our highest was 454. Our total number of ICU beds over that time period was 131, was the lowest, 172 was the highest. And if you look at ventilator use, for instance, 67 Mississippians were on ventilators at the lowest number in the last 30 days, 87 at the highest. And so I think when you look at that data and you look at the numbers, Mississippi is the epitome of having flattened the curve. And we did so ensuring that we were successful at accomplishing our ultimate goal, which was to make sure that every single Mississippian that could get better with quality care receive that quality care. And so far, we've been able to meet that goal. Yes, safety always first, Governor Reeves. But of course, the economic uh, health of your state is of utmost importance, too. So tell us what business has been like for those establishments that have been able to reopen. Just as a reminder, the week before we received our first case, we had less than 1,000 Mississippians file for unemployment insurance. Over the last eight weeks, we've had 220,000 Mississippians file for unemployment insurance. And that is just, that's unbelievable numbers that we haven't seen since the Great Depression in our state. And so when you look at the real economic damage that has been done, it is real and it is huge. That is the reason that we have to get our economy back going again. We have to reopen. We've done so in a safe, responsible way. Every step of the way, when we've opened new industries, we have given guidelines that we've encouraged our businesses and our small businesses and our uh, people to adhere to. And I will tell you, I've been so proud of my constituents and so proud of my fellow Mississippians because they've done just that. They've adhered to it. We haven't seen a major spike in cases. In fact, uh, if anything, the cases have gone down slightly. And so we, we're able to not only protect the lives of our Mississippians, but we can protect the livelihoods at the same time. And that's the ultimate goal. And uh, according to some data from the Mississippi State Department of Health, coronavirus, as you know, has been disproportionately affecting African-Americans in your state. Why do you think that disparity exists and what are you doing to combat it? Well, what I would tell you is ultimately it will be the scientists who will determine exactly why that has been the case. There, it appears certainly that those with pre-existing conditions that the coronavirus is particularly cruel to, those who have hypertension and heart disease and diabetes and, and obesity, um, it is certainly more cruel to those who are in our older populations. If you look at the 554 deaths in Mississippi, for instance, 484 of those have been in individuals who are over the age of 60. Every single one of those are tragic, but that is what the data suggests right now. One of the things that we've been trying to do to uh, protect uh, our African-American population is we've worked very hard to get 
as much information, as much education out to those communities. We work with our African-American mayors. We work with uh, famous Mississippians to provide PSAs, folks like uh, famous blues singers or Morgan Freeman or Eli Manning, for instance, have been kind enough to do PSAs for us as we try to disseminate information to all of our communities. And when it comes to the elderly, uh, we're currently undergoing a plan to test every single resident in every long-term care facility in our state and test every single employee. That's about 27,500 combined, and it's a, it's a monumental task, but it's one we're committed to. We're going to get it done over a two-week period, and we're about halfway through that right now. All right, and you are allowing, this is a big headline, casinos in Mississippi to reopen starting tomorrow. Talk about the safety guidelines you're implementing to avoid spreading the virus in those areas. Well, we, we've instituted significant safety guidelines with respect to casinos and every other industry. Uh, we're having every single employee is going to be communicated with as they come into work. They're going to be asked the questions that need to be asked. Their temperature is going to be taken. Same thing is true of every single guest that comes into the facility. We're also requiring social distancing guidelines where you won't have, for instance, a slot machine that is less than six feet apart. We're reducing the number of people that can play on table games. So, for instance, if you see a blackjack table, we'll only allow three individuals, one person in the middle and two on the very far end, to play in a particular table game. And so uh, the, the industry has worked very hard to make sure that it's been safe for their customers and their employees. And we're, uh, we're looking forward to getting uh, all of our business and industry back operational and functional because every single business is essential to whomever owns it and to whomever works there because it helps them provide food for their families. That's right. And speaking of uh, essential businesses, I know your state health department is investigating a growing number of COVID-19 cases in counties with meat processing plants. And we've heard from some poultry plant workers that say they are not being told when someone at their plant has tested positive and they say they're not getting paid if they get COVID and have to stay home. What can you do as governor to protect these plant workers? Well, I'll tell you, we have certainly seen rising number of cases in certain counties that have a large number of, of meat uh, facilities. We have sent teams from the Mississippi State Department of Health. I actually, while we reopened the entire state a couple of weeks ago, we actually have additional guidelines in place for five different counties, that most of which are in east central Mississippi, most of which do have a large number of meat processing facilities. Uh, we put guidelines in place to ensure that everyone in those communities wear masks, whether they're going to work or they're out in public. We've also put guidelines in place to ensure that every employee is, is at least screened as they come into the facility. And we also are, are working and sending PPE to those facilities to make sure that the employees are protected. Governor Tate Reeves, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me today. Up next here, Dr. Jen Ashton with some new information on the COVID-19 pandemic, answering the questions you have. And then kids and screens, making sure our children are not falling behind when it comes to learning when we come back. Well, Dr. Jen Ashton is back now with a deep dive on a number of your very specific coronavirus questions. There's never been a shortage of them, Dr. Right. Jen. So we're very happy you're here with us. First question, can you explain the four phases of a vaccine trial? Well, we've heard about this before because, again, there's this mad rush to develop in warp speed this vaccine. Um, but we can't cut certain steps. So basically, there are three main phases, clinical phases and trials that have to go on to develop a vaccine. You can think of them all as evaluating safety, 
and efficacy and in greater numbers as we go along. So state phase one, very small numbers, safety and efficacy. Then you broaden those numbers to a couple of hundred in phase two, phase three, thousands. And again, you're looking at short-term safety, long-term safety, and efficacy across various populations. All right. Next question. Is there any specific reason why there have been so many tests that have false negative results. Mm. So again, we opened with this. We have to remember, first of all, every test can have false positives and false negatives. When you talk about false negatives for PCR, that's the nasal swab to diagnose active infection, if it's not done properly, Mm. if the person isn't shedding enough virus, because remember, the way it's done is to amplify virus in the lab, if it's not processed in a timely manner, all of those things can give a false negative. And You know, this is something we have to remember. There's no such thing as a 100% accurate test when you're looking for an infectious disease. Okay, yeah, very important to remember. Next question. As more states open up, is it safe to let kids play contact sports? You know, I hope so, because my daughter plays a contact sport at the collegiate level. But here's what we know right now. Um, There was a a recent publication in JAMA just out a few days ago, um, really from the American College of Cardiology, ironically, and their Council on Sports Physiology, because we know that COVID-19 can affect the heart even in younger athletes. And so they really delineate when can you go back to exercise or contact sports, competition. And basically they're saying for mild symptoms, no hospitalization, at least two weeks. And if someone is hospitalized, then they need more formal evaluation uh, to assess their heart and their heart function. But there is obviously the risk of getting infected or spreading the infection with close contact sport. Um, so again, they, they say with social distancing, that's pretty hard when you play sports like my daughter, ice hockey. Right. You're, you're right up in there. Right. <laughs> and spit is flying everywhere. Yeah, so, no, so that's TBD, right? We'll have to see what... On the, a- that's right. I mean, it is important to remember that this age group, you know, younger students, younger children are at lower risk. But as we've covered before, that does not mean zero risk. So they still do need protection and some kind of precautions. But that is being figured out literally as we speak. All right. Dr. Jen Ashton, thank you so much. And you, you can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, as the school year comes to a close and summer activities have been canceled, many parents are concerned that the summer will not lessen the amount of screen time their kids are getting. So here to talk about prioritizing quality screen time is Emmy Award-winning creator and executive producer of shows like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and Blue's Clues. We have Angela Santomero with us. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. We certainly appreciate it. And we all know now more than ever, our kids are using screens for everything, for school, for recreation, for connecting with their friends and family. What is too much screen time in these times? You know, it's such a complicated question, right? I base everything on the quality of the media. You know, we always talk about that we're feeding our kids' brains with the media that they're consuming, just like we're feeding their bodies with the food that we're giving them. And so the idea of eating too much broccoli isn't a thing. So the idea of consuming really good quality media is also something that we have to take into consideration, that we know what to look for, that we know what our kids are getting out of it, that we can also balance it, right? That an hour of screen time is an hour of off-screen time. And that is the hope 
whenever we're creating shows is that we're viewing and doing, right? We're inspiring kids by the media that we have to then go outside and change the world at a socially distanced space, of course. But the idea that we're getting them up and moving and reading and, you know, practicing some kindergarten readiness skills, doing dramatic play if they're younger, you know, all of these things that they get, they're impassioned by with regard to the media. Yeah, I know. And, and I think as parents, we're trying to do all of those things you just listed, but you're the expert in children's educational programming. Tell us why quality media still is very important. It matters quite a bit in these times. You know, it's all about the research, you know, everything that we're talking about and that we're learning during this time, that it's really all based in the fact that there's research that's done on kids' media to prove that kids not only enjoy the shows, we want them to understand and enjoy everything, but also that they're learning what we intend for them to learn. So we do at Nine Story a ton of research-based programs, not only on the formative level with kids all the time to prove that we're teaching kids to read, that we're, you know, teaching them the kindergarten readiness skills, but also there are longitudinal studies that prove from the University of Pennsylvania, from University of Texas or Alabama, that we are doing, moving the needle with these programs. So for Super Y, you are learning to read when you're watching Super Y, knowing that you can use the materials that we have, that some of the co-viewing, if we can not feel guilty about some of these quality programs that we're putting our kids in front of and knowing that we're inspiring them to be able to then put out maybe some books that are easy for them to pick up and read or write their own ending to a story, you know, just being creative right now with how the media is impacting them. Yeah. And can you talk to us about using media versus letting it use us? I love that, right? Especially in the in the in today, right? With all of the on-demand programming, we can actually choose the shows that our kids are the most interested in. Choose certain episodes if our kids are afraid of the dark. If our kids are getting nervous about something, there's a ton of Daniel Tiger strategies that we could be choosing a sharing episode, let's say, and then having a conversation about it. And we also talk about, you know, these are your kids' friends, and are they? Let's make sure first of all that they're your friends that you want for your kids. That if you open the living room, if you open the front door, that literally these or kids you'd want to have over for dinner. So is Daniel Tiger somebody like that? And be okay with talking about it. What would Daniel do? You know, having those conversations about media only enhances what our kids are learning from it. And right now, you know, we really want to continue to enhance our kids' vocabulary. We want to really try to motivate them to do things that they're excited about doing, whether it's playing the piano just to play, whether it's, you know, picking up books, whether it's writing. So this is the kind of thing where we're worried about the summer slump. We're worried about right. what we can be doing and we can use educational media to do that. To yeah, help well, with that. I mean, it, it's incredible what you've been able to create. And we certainly as parents, thank you for all that you've done. Angela San- Santomer, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. ABC News launching across all of our platforms. Three days examining this health crisis along racial and socioeconomic lines. According to the CDC, Latinos represent more than a quarter of all COVID-19 deaths, although they account for only 18 percent of the population. And getting vital information out to Spanish-speaking members of the community is key. Morning Anchor at our ABC affiliate WFTV Channel 9 in Central Florida, Nancy Alvarez is here to talk about her efforts. And Nancy, thank you so much for being with us. And I know people from your community have turned to you for help because they say there's been a huge lack of outreach provided to Hispanic communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're hearing, what you're seeing down there in Central Florida? Well, thank you so much for for having me to talk about a subject that's so uh, important and 
close to my heart. Uh, these observations really came early on in the pandemic uh, from people in the trenches, you know, local religious leaders, advocates uh, in the Hispanic community who were wondering out loud why we weren't hearing uh, more Spanish being spoken at these regular news conferences that our county was holding to update us on the pandemic. Uh, we had a situation where a viewer actually reached out to me at our TV station to tell me that she was confused because she called the Spanish line uh, at the local health department and the information on the testing criteria was wrong. It was actually outdated. And that was because of a third-party contractor that the county was using for that hotline. So that caused confusion there. Um, to give you an example, we have a community here in Central Florida, Orange County, of about 60,000 people. 60% are Hispanic. Now, many speak English, but many don't, and they need this critical information. And this really wasn't just about words uh, from the beginning. Uh, there wasn't any testing being conducted early on anywhere near this community. There was a lot of concern about that. Um, but I'm so happy to have this platform to tell you that we've really come a long way uh, here in Orlando and Orange County. Uh, since March when all of this started. We do hear more Spanish now at our news conferences. Mobile testing did come to that community that I just described to you. And just to give you an example, this is pretty cool. Recently, the city of Orlando uh, sent out some information on testing, right? And they sent out to local reporters and the public, and it was these little snippets that you could share on social media about testing criteria and where and when it was going to happen. And that information was sent out in English, Spanish, Creole, Portuguese, and Vietnamese. So we've certainly come a long way in just a couple months. Yeah, you certainly have. And I know you're a large part of that. You speak Spanish. You decided to take matters into your own hands. Tell us what you did. <laughs> Well, I, I do the morning show here uh, at the local affiliate, WFTV, as you mentioned. Um, and after our morning show, uh, my producers and I just started doing these short recaps of our top stories in Spanish. And uh, we put them out on social media. We have them up on our website, WFTV.com. We actually have a whole section there in Spanish for our viewers to get information. And we really just did this to enhance the work that's already being done by so many hardworking journalists here in Central Florida who are bilingual and they're working really, really hard uh, to reach this community. So it was just one more thing that we could do to really help support them. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know that there's an area in Central Florida that saw a huge influx of Puerto Ricans who wanted to rebuild their mm -hmm. lives after the devastation of Hurricane Maria. So how are they dealing with experiencing the effects of this pandemic? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me about them, because really the big question here is who are we talking about, right? Who are we saying, you know, that is in need of this information? Uh, in my community, for example, we have so many families that are in transition. It's not just Puerto Ricans. It's families who recently arrived here from Venezuela, uh, fleeing the ordeal in that country. And then again, those thousands of families uh, who fled Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria in 2017, and then more recently, the earthquakes that they had there on the island. So imagine going through that hurricane, earthquakes, and now this pandemic. Um, these are families that are working really hard. They have jobs here. They're working to assimilate their kids. And yes, they are working to learn English. They are, but they just need a minute. They need some time because they haven't been here that long. And if something like this, a public health crisis occurs during this transitional time for them, it is in the best interest really of our entire community that these families are informed and that they're safe. And this can't be reactive. It, it has to be proactive. It has to be part of an overall emergency response yeah, in the best interest of all of us. That makes 
perfect sense. Now, I, I want to ask you just bottom line, what information, Nancy, do you want people to walk away with now? Well, I would just ask that, you know, emergency managers, city and county leaders all over this country just pause and really take a look at the diversity uh, in the regions that they're in charge of, that they get creative in how to reach them, that they use social media. Um, if you have a large Haitian community, for example, like we do here in Central and South Florida, are you giving out information on testing in Creole, for example, in Spanish? And this really just isn't for government leaders. You know, you were talking about how we're reopening the economy in states all across this country. Business owners, uh, as they get ready to reopen, are you issuing safety protocols in languages that all of your employees uh, will understand? As for the media, get into those communities, connect, tell their stories. Um, if a news conference is being streamed on your station uh, website or Facebook page and, and, they, and they veer into Spanish, don't cut the feed. Keep it going. Uh, getting this information to these communities in times like this is just really critical, first and foremost, because these are families with children. These are human beings. That's number one, but also because it really will ensure the safety of everyone in times like this. That's right. It's not about I. It's about us. We're all in this together. Nancy Alvarez, thanks for this huge, huge eye-opener that we all needed to hear. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. We are back now with our focus on educators revolutionizing classroom study in the midst of pandemic. Let's meet the North Carolina technology professor taking teaching to the next virtual level. I'm Stephen King. I'm a professor of emerging technologies at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media and Keenan Flagler Business School. I teach emerging technologies, which is augmented reality, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and how do we leverage and use those to reach new audiences and reach people in different ways. Virtual reality allows people to be transported to another time or place. For our students, they put on the headset each week for class, and they are transported into the VR classroom. This 3D space has digital whiteboards, it has a screen, it has all the things that our classroom is used to having, but it just has it in a virtual way. In our in-person classroom, where we're traditionally on campus, Students come in and out of my office and I feel like I have this relationship where they can bring ideas to me, we can coach and work through them. Now that we're remote, that's a lot different and we're trying to find ways to use technology to help us to continue to bring students and teachers together. When we found out that the university was going to move all of its classes online, I knew this was a time to try things out. But to do this in virtual reality was entirely new, something that I had not done. I've built 3D environments before, but never for an online learning experience. So we're gonna learn about augmented reality today. We're going to uh, talk about social VR and have some interactions and see how that goes. Each week we gathered in my virtual classroom that I was able to build and customize specifically for our class. When Steven decided to mail the Oculus Go headset to our house, I bragged about it to my family and my friends because who else gets to go to class in virtual reality space rather than on Zoom or something? A unique thing about virtual reality is that it helped us go from this very serious COVID reality that we're living in to get all the students back into the classroom and thinking about how we were going to collaborate together. Very cool. Our thanks to Stephen King and his students and all the educators out there working so hard to make a difference. 
And we're going to turn to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. Oh, today. I just love that story, yeah. Amy. Um, you know, I was thinking about lessons that I learned in healing from a tragedy that that struck my family. And it reminded me of the importance of keeping a routine. So I wanted to share that as my prescription of the day, because what I learned from mental health experts was that when you deal with a world that's just been rocked and changed in the most fundamental way from top down and bottom up, it's critically important to restore some routine, even if it's a new routine, which is what a lot of us are dealing with now in our new normal, uh, to show us that not everything in life has been exploded. There, there is something that you can count on day by day. So now, as the weather starts to get nice and people start to go out, whether it's your routine of cleaning, then meditating, then connecting with people socially or going for a walk. I know you have a daily routine of, of your run. It's so important. It's so therapeutic. And um, so the, I think that we all need to keep that in mind. I love that you always feel better afterwards. Too. Yeah, it's for a sure. huge difference. And right? we have a new normal. Yes, we do. Dr. Jen, thank you so much. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.